This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Chris Fetters of Dogman.com, and I'm here with Scott Eklund. Uh, this is, uh, you know, getting ready, you know, Kim Grinnells is on route to the big house, so he's not with us. Um, but he will be giving us all of the details, all the, the pregame during the game and postgame stuff that you guys all crave, uh, on dogman.com. So he is kind of our lone representative in Michigan, uh, tonight. But bottom line is, Scott, we all thought that this was going to be an unbelievable game going into the season. ABC has it as their marquee game of their Saturday slate. You know, it's got the, it's got the prime time slot, five o'clock on the West Coast, eight o'clock on the East Coast. It was going to be, you know, two teams, FBS power programs kind of trying to get back up to the top of the pyramid, trying to, trying to claw the, claw their way back and, and, and have had some measure of success over the years, but haven't quite gotten over the hump. Uh, two proud programs, a lot of tradition. All the storylines that you could think of were, were being worked on, I'm sure, by the ABC executives, all the pre-production, all the hype, everything like that. And then Washington goes out and just lays a big one. All yeah, somewhere, somewhere, somebody is playing that uh, Price is Right. Yeah. You know, it's just... Sunday, Sunday morning, they wake up and read the, read the headlines and they're like, what are we going to do now? Yeah. Super. (laughs) Super. And yeah, exactly. So it, it, and and let's be fair. I mean, we've talked ad nauseum on the message boards in the podcast. It's been amazing. I've, I've been asked to do a lot of more national things during this week than I would have normally thought I would, but it wasn't, it's not because it's Michigan week. It's because it's post Montana week. Yeah. It's because it (laughs) was an epic. Epic failure. It's, it's yeah. an, Amer- it's an American tradition. You know, as you're driving along the highway, looking over and seeing the wreckage on the side of the road and seeing, Oh my God, I'm sure glad I'm not that guy. Um, you know, I was, I was driving on I five yesterday and I saw, uh, on the other side of the road, a car flipped over, you know, and of course you have all the ambulances and the whatever. And I'm thinking, yeah, that, that kind of feels like the Washington football program right yeah. now. And, um, but it's just, you know, how do you know, how do you feel like they, they can get over this? How do you I mean, because, you, you know, this is the thing about college football and the same thing about the NFL. They have games every week. Once you're in the season, you're in it. You're in the bubble. Mm-hmm. You can't get out of it. Yeah. So how do they bounce back so quickly to be able to try to put together a scheme, a philosophy, a, 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 a way of executing things on offense and defense and special teams that can get them a win in the big house? Yeah, I, you know, it, it, as far as the get, how do they get past this, uh, Montana thing? I think at, at least as far as Husky Nation is concerned, the only way they're getting past it is if they 
somehow come in, go into the big house and get a win. And, um, you know, the, the players, I think the players, uh, have a belief in themselves and, and the coaches and, and they want to get things done and, and they, they think they just failed, um, on a epic scale last, last Saturday. And I think they, you know, it's, it's like what Kim has said many times, um, this week, but in previous weeks too, is, was this something that happened or is this who they are? And he, he's just, and if you looked at his, uh, you know, game prediction from Friday, it was basically, you know, he doesn't believe that this is, this team is as bad as what we saw on Saturday. And the Huskies just, honestly, more than anything, they need to go in with confidence. And I think it's hard to do that when you just lost to an FCS team and you're going, to one of the storied programs in, in the nation in Michigan, you're going in the big house. Now Michigan isn't what they have been in, in, in years previous, but they're still uh, a very talented team and they're directed by a, a coach who has Washington's number and did when he was at Stanford. So, um, you know, real tough to go, real tough way to bounce back from, but you got to figure out a way to do it. And if Washington's going to do it, they're going to have to play basically a perfect game and, that's one of the reasons why I, I don't see them winning this game. I think they're going to make it a lot closer than people think they, they will. I think they're going to come out. There's some pride on this team. There's guys who are used to going to the playoffs, the college football playoffs. There's guys who on this team who have won two conference titles. This is not a team of, of losers. Uh, it's a team that is used to winning and, and got used to doing that. And they stumbled in 2019. Last season, they go three and one and everybody had high hopes for this year. And then all of a sudden they fall flat on their face. How they respond is going to determine how the rest of the season goes. Yeah. And, and it's funny because you, you mentioned the, 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 the age old question. Is it, is it what you did or is it who you are? And of course, after one game, you're never going to know. I mean, you're just never going to know until you see a pattern emerge. And I remember talking to Lorenzo Romar for years about this, and he was very, very consistent. He's like, I, I wait until I really see a pattern emerge before I start taking some serious stock about what we need to reevaluate in terms of what's going wrong, whether it's, you know, whatever you're talking about. And obviously, we're talking about Washington's offense when, when, when we're really breaking things down because there was nothing that, that, we saw defensively against Montana that can't be worked on. The details can't be fixed. All of these things that will make them better as they continue to go on through the season. But offensively, yes, I'm sure there were a ton of people out there that were very, first of all, very skeptical based on how Washington finished the 2020 season. Just weren't sure how, how this team was going to respond. But again, when you open practices up, and you start to, you know, you start to try to re-engage with the fan base and you're laying it out there like Jimmy Lake has. And you're saying, Hey, here's what we are that you can come out and watch us. You can see us operate. You can see what we're all about. We're going to scrimmage right in front of you. We're going to play as, as close to tackle full tackle football as we can, uh, during spring and fall. You know, when you go out there and show that and, and there's really nothing to suggest a, a massive systemic failure in offense like we saw against Montana, it really does make you wonder what is going on fundamentally in that locker room that caused them to misjudge that game so horrifically. I mean, from top to bottom, 
And, and, and you'd listen to people like Ryan Bowman talk about just how it, it felt like just Montana showed Washington's offense things that they weren't expecting and maybe hadn't prepared for. But, but then you, li- but, but then you listen to Kate Otten and he said they didn't do anything we didn't expect them to do. Yeah. So, so is it, is it their version of coach speak? Yeah. Is it, is it, but really, but it does come down, but there were other things that you don't have to be an X's and O's person to understand when you're seeing the end of the third quarter in that Montana Washington game and you're seeing Montana rally on the field, getting together as a team, jumping up and down, showing a ton of energy, a ton of enthusiasm. And then you look over to the other sideline and you literally see guys just walking up and down the sidelines like they're zombies. And and Ryan Bowen even said they, they were zombie-like in just how they approach things, and, and they just didn't know how to react when they got hit in the mouth. Mm-hmm. And that really, for a veteran team, and let's be clear, this team is extremely experienced. You talk about that offensive line, one of the – you know, every uh, preseason prognostication had that offensive line as one of the best in the country. But you take you, you've got the two tackles who are very experienced in 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 Kirkland and Kern. You've got Luke Wattenberg at center, sixth year guy coming back. But then all of a sudden the guards look like an absolute hot mess. And I don't know if anybody really saw that coming, but when they made a change, as we saw Scott mid fall camp taking out uh, Ulamula Ale and putting in Julius Bulow, it, it was a bit of a head-scratcher. And how, how did you see that? Well, you know, I, I guess my – I mean, I, I, I saw a guy who didn't play very well in Julius Bulow. Um, I definitely saw that. Well, when you, when you have a pass-blocking grade and pro football focus of under 30, mm-hmm. I, I've never seen – I honestly – for someone that played every single offensive line snap in that game, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, like, I, I, you might see, yeah. an, you might see a running back get a pass block, like a pass pro grade of something that low. If, you know, that, that's pretty common. I know, I think it happened to Cameron Davis actually in that same game, mm-hmm. but, but an offensive lineman, a guy who's six, eight, three thirty, getting a pass blocking grade of what, 29.4 yeah. or whatever it was. I, I honestly, yeah. that was, absolutely mind melting to me i couldn't believe yeah and and that was one of the the concerns with julius bulow when he was coming out of high school was that he his feet were uh slow that he just couldn't handle blocking in space and that's why they felt that he was more of an inside guy rather than a right tackle or whatever and and um i think that was one of the problems was that he was a plotter you know and honestly when i saw uh, Julius Bulow, uh, the guy that I thought of was the one who, um, signed out of Wenatchee to Wazoo. Um, totally drawn a blank on his name, but he's, he ended up an All-American his senior year and everything like that. But it was the same kind of a guy with really heavy feet, Cody. Um, ah, shoot, I don't remember. Anyway, had really heavy feet and still was able to get it done. But Washington's blocking scheme is a lot different than what Washington State does. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I on, Honestly, I'd like to see Nate Kalepo in there. I'd like to see what he can do. I think he's got better feet, and I think that he can he can move a little bit better. So, um, you know, as far as uh, MJ Ale is concerned, man, I, I, I don't know what to think because he wasn't just horrific last year. 
um, in pass blocking, but I, and I know he wasn't below 30%, you know, or, you know, 30, a 30 grade, you know, in pro football weekly, but he wasn't very good either. So I think that's why the competition was opened up. And a lot of people felt like, uh, Julius Bulow had played well enough. And from what you and I saw, Chris, at fall camp, it looked like he knew what he was doing. So. Yeah, it- yeah, and how much of an indictment on the defensive line is that now? Yeah, but but I mean, is it or is it just you know he's used to blocking big guys like what Washington has on their interior rather than what Montana threw out there, which is a two hundred eighty pounder or a two hundred seventy pounder. You know, that's a little bit more on the quick side. So I, you know, I don't know. I, sounds like they did a lot of twisting and stunting and things like that. And there was some, I'm sure there was some communication errors when you watch, when you watch what goes on because guys were running free on Dylan Morris several times. But, um, you know, the, if he is the starter this coming, this coming, uh, game, this, you know, later this afternoon, this evening, I, I gotta believe that the coaches have said, Hey, you have to be on point with your with your communication, or you, or we're going to yank you because we got to get this done, and we're not going to get our quarterback killed. Yeah, well, hindsight's twenty twenty, guys. We all yeah. know. And yep. and right now, it looked like the move to move Julius Bulow to left guard was a panic move. It's like it's like experimenting in the middle of fall when you should have been experimenting with that in the middle of spring. Because if you already you already had like you mentioned with 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 uh, MJ Ale Umulu Ale, the the baseline was already there. You already have four games worth of film that you could have used to say you know what by the end of the season you didn't get any better, you didn't improve, you didn't take that next step in your development. We need to go a different direction, or, or at the very least put someone else in there to compete with you to to see if that can push things along a little bit. So you mentioned Nate Kalepo. I think the guy that I want to see is Troy Faltanu. Because Troy Faltanu is a guy that I think yeah. he plays left tackle right behind Jackson Kirkland. We know that. But he's a left-sided guy. He's he's just begging to, to get some playing time. You mm-hmm. can tell. I mean, he's ready to go. I, I, don't, I don't know why they would stun his development on that. He's a left-sided player. If something did happen to Kirkland, you move him just back outside, and then you move one of the, one of the other guys back in there. And when he was being recruited, he was basically thought of as a guy who could play anywhere along the offensive line. Correct. Correct. So. And he's not, you know, he's not, he's not a guy who's 6'8", 330, like Bulow. He's more like 6'4", 295, 300. So he can handle quicks as well as, you know, he's, we know he's a strong kid. So that's the guy I'd like to see. Now, what's interesting is you talked about Nate Kalepa moving back to the left side, which is fine. But what I'm, sensing is that he got moved in there mid game against Montana because something's up with Henry Bainavalu. Yeah. And we don't we don't know that for sure. Yeah. But he wasn't he wasn't pulled out of that game for performance reasons because if if he was getting pulled out of the game for performance reasons, then Julius Bulow would have gotten pulled well before that. Yeah right? and I mean uh, yeah, I, I have to believe that there's something going on that we don't know about uh as far as you know with with an injury and things like that, and they're not going to talk about that kind of stuff with us sure. anyway. So do you, so, so you put MJ Ale in there, or do mm-hmm. you think about Miles Morale? Do you think about yeah. Mateo Mele? Do you? Th- I mean, yeah. there's other guys. I mean, we literally could be talking about seven or eight different guys that could be in competition for those two guard spots. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, but when you're talking about and you know what was considered a top ten offensive line coming into the season. You don't 
you're not talking, you're not having these kinds of conversations after one game in the season. That's, that to me, that's a problem. And I, and I don't know how you solve it. Yeah, I, I don't either. Um, you know, if, if I'm Scott Huff, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I got to get my best five on the field regardless of who it is. I mean, you know, Troy, if Troy is number five, you got to get him on the, on the, off of the bench and on the, on the field. I, I mean, agree. It, it's, I don't want to call it panic mode, but it's, it's emergency mode. You, if you want to save your season, you got to play better. It's and, all hands to the pump. Yeah, There's no yeah, doubt about got, it. It's all hands on deck. And, and if, even if Washington doesn't get a win against Michigan, but if they put in, let's say they, let's say they decided to go with, let, let's say Henry Bainabalo isn't available and they decide to, to move their, you know, their fifth best guy in Troy, uh, Fautanu into the, you know, at one of the guard spots and maybe Kalepo or Ale in at the other, uh, guard spot. I gotta believe that even if they lose to a Michigan, playing against Michigan with those five, playing against, playing against, uh, Arkansas State with those five could only benefit the offensive line heading into league play, which let's be honest, as, as great as it would be to be three and O going into league play, that isn't going to happen anyway, but as great as it would be to go two and one, uh, before we head into, you know, they head into league play, even if you're 0 and 3, you can still win the conference. You can still win the conference and you can still go to the Rose Bowl. And honestly, that's got to be the goal at this point because going to the playoff is basically out the window. Yeah. I've got to see if that's ever happened in an FCS conference or FBS conference, excuse me, yeah. like a power five conference. If a team's ever gone, uh, if they've ever lost all of their non-conference games only to win the conference, <laughs> I'd be shocked yeah. if that ever happened. Can you t- imagine the roller coaster ride that fans would have been on through that whole year? <laughs> oh, that I, yeah, no, I mean you literally would be on. I mean, I could be straddling it, a fence. If that it I don't did know happen, you, if it did happen, it's a team that's the best team in their league, and and which Washington, I think, is you know at least going into the season, we would have said they were arguably one of the top two or three teams in the league. But I, my guess is it's. If it did happen, someone went 0 and 3 and it's a team that's in a maybe lower level league, uh, that is the best team in their conference. And in order to boost their rankings, they went up against three, um, major conference, you know, power five conference teams. Right. And lost relatively close games and then went through and ran through their schedule. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way I think it happens. Sure. No, no. I mean, that, that is, I mean, there's no other way to really look at it. Cause you know, at this point, most of the athletic directors out there try to do that ABC style scheduling where they do have at least one maybe considered cupcake, quote unquote. But, um, yeah, there, there would be no doubt that they would have to have gone through a real gauntlet. And, and to be fair, you know, we're, we're talking about a team in Washington that's playing Michigan tonight that lost to Appalachian State in 2007, and fans still talk about that game to this day. But the fact is, Appalachian State was considered the number one FCS team in the country. Montana's barely top ten. Yeah, and and that's that's you know, that's they, a problem. They might be the best team in in the Big Sky, but that is not not it's not on the same level. And but we know Bobby Houck is trying to get them back to a national championship game, and and. The way they played uh, against Washington Saturday, they have 
uh, every right to have those types of expectations put upon them. But let's, you know, we've harped on the offensive line. We've, we've been negative so far. That's on me. Let's start talking about some of the positives. If there are some silver linings out there, you wrote about one of them on our front page, uh, on Friday. Tell the fans out there a little bit about a silver lining, a potential thing that could happen that might boost the spirits a little bit. Well, the, the title of my story is, uh, is Washington's offense in for some good news? Uh, some, is good news coming for Huskies, for the Husky offense? And, um, you know, the, <clears throat> the main person this was about was Jalen McMillan. I'm sorry. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but the main person this is about is Jalen McMillan. But we got to also t- say there's been some insiders talking about the fact that Terrell Bynum is expected back this week. And that's even probably bigger than Jalen McMillan. But Jalen McMillan posted on his Snapchat that he, uh, we activated, <laughs> which, um, uh, you know, college players are not activated. They're not activated off of the, the injured reserve or anything like that. But he, it says we activated and it's a picture of him on the Husky, uh, plane as he's getting ready to head out to Michigan. And, um, you know, there's a lot of ways you could probably take that, but it sure seems like he's ready to go and is traveling with the team. You do not travel a guy who is not going to play. Right, Chris? Or I not, mean, you're or not, not gonna, be available to play. Or no, not they, as, have, yeah. they have in the past. They've done that. They yeah. did it, they've done it with fre- like freshman quarterbacks, for instance. Because yes. they want them to have that experience of being in that kind of game day environment, big time, and all that. But, you know, a guy like McMillan, who's second year in the program, I don't think they're taking him out there just for drill. Now, no. the, it could be a ruse. I mean, you know, Jimmy Lake's the master, you know, you know, he, he's a guy that will play the game, the mind game and all that. So there's no doubt Jalen McMillan could be going out there to do absolutely nothing. It's possible, but chances are likely considering the depth shortage that they have at receiver that he wouldn't be playing a game with that group. You no. know, you, you've got to have as many bodies as you can to be able to play against yep. this Michigan team. Yep. And so the way I look at it is a guy, he's a guy that caught a pass last year for 16 yards and he had two carries for 14 yards. This is not somebody coming back with tons of experience and, and proven playmaking ability, but the guy is an athlete. He's a talented kid and the coaches loved him, uh, coming in and, you know, Getting him back, if he can figure it out, if the biggest thing, Chris, and you and I saw it in spring ball, we saw it in fall camp, at least early on in fall camp, was he fights the ball. He, he is not yeah. a natural receiver. And if he is, um, he's, he was just pressing whatever it was that he had going on. He, he did not look good. And then all of a sudden for about three practices, I think it was practices like six, seven and eight or five, six, seven. He looked great. He was making catches over the middle. He was making athletic grabs down the field. He was getting open. And, uh, and then all of a sudden he suffers a hand injury. Now, you know, we don't know the extent of it and everything like that, but we had heard it was a pretty major injury. And so we knew that he was going to be out at least a significant amount of time and he missed all the rest of the, the open practices. He missed the two weeks of prep heading into Montana and then obviously missed the Montana game. But apparently the, he, at least if, if you're reading into it 
without, you know, purple colored glasses, it looks like he's ready to go. And, um, and, uh, that could be huge for Washington from a playmaking standpoint. Now they just got to figure out how to get him the ball. Yeah. And let's be clear. I mean, you know, we're talking also about Terrell Bynum potentially being available. That Terrell is Bynum big. finished with eight catches last year. Mm. I mean, that's your, that's your experience, your quote unquote experienced receiver. Well, back. yeah, I mean, the the year before that, I think he had what thirty one receptions. So, yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. but we're but we but, but literally, this is this is what you have to ha- ha- hang your hat on if you're a Washington fan when looking at the playmakers on offense at wide receiver. They are they are not very deep, obviously, to start with because of the injury factor. You know, Roma Dunsey's not going to play. Jalen Polk's out for the season. You know, at the very, at the very least, you know, and then Bynum and Bill and they could both be out too. I mean, that's, that's kind of the operating, uh, thing that we're working with right now that, that, that mm-hmm. none of those guys are going to be available. And you've got to go with Taj Davis. You got to go with Michigan transfer Giles Jackson. You got to go with Sawyer Racanelli and Jabez today. And then after that, it's walk-ons. Yeah. Or you move in other guys to the situation. Alex Cook. Alex Cook, or you can move in a Sean McGrew, or you can move someone else. Um, you know, they, they have options, but they're trying to put in round pegs and square holes. It doesn't mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's going to be a super interesting thing to see, but just getting those guys back, even if they were only able to play very sparingly could be a huge silver lining for Washington just to be able to have some experienced bodies out there that have, um, some kind of veteran understanding of what it's like to go on the road and play, uh, you know, as road dogs, so to speak. And, and Chris, another thing that can't be overlooked, and you already mentioned his name, but uh, Taj Davis, you know, he had he was the leading receiver uh, for the Huskies, not the leading receptor. The that was that went to Kate Otten, but um, he had six receptions for fifty nine yards. You know, yeah, and, and he was the eleven targets. What? 11 targets. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, some of those are overthrows and those weren't drops that I remember. But yeah, I know what you're saying. No, it's, well, it's tough because when you have 46 targets, but only 27 catches, how much of that is on the quarterback? How much of that is on the receiver? Yeah. I think, I think Kim mentioned that there were at least four drops that he remembered. Uh, but they were a couple of them were pretty big drops, like the fourth down drop by Giles Jackson. You know, those are things that could potentially mm-hmm. lead to, you know, game-winning drives, for instance, in the fourth yep. quarter. Um, and some of the other ones are interceptions by Dylan Morris, like the last one to basically end the game, him yep. trying to force something into a situation where he, he was triple covering. Have, yeah, yeah, he didn't have to, th- he didn't have to make that throw. Yeah. He was, um, he, um, Kate Otten was bracketed and he had a linebacker underneath and that's the one that picked it off. So yeah. Yeah, and and that's the thing. When we when we go back to that underlying question that you put out there at the beginning of the podcast, Scott, whether it's what they did or whether it's who they are, you know, I'm I'm looking at the quarterback now, and I'm I'm talking about Dylan Morris, and I don't see this being what Dylan Morris is, what we saw against Montana, because it wasn't who he was in the first four games he started in 2020. Now, was it just the difference between playing in front of cardboard cutouts? And uh, uh, an actual living, breathing crowd. I don't know. I, I really don't know. Was it the difference between playing in front of an offensive line 
that decided they needed to protect him as opposed to the sieve that we saw Saturday night. There's so many X factors, but I think when we talk about that, that idea of being who they are or, or just what happened, I have to think that of all the, the pieces on offense, I'm looking at the quarterback and saying, I don't think that's what Dylan Morris is at all. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've seen him since he was a freshman in high school, Chris. That did not look like the same guy. And let's be honest, it didn't look like the same guy we saw in fall camp. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know. I I honestly think the players started questioning everything. You know, what are we doing wrong? Why aren't we able to just roll these guys over? And um and I Which think is it funny caught because up they them. did it. They did yeah. it on the very first drive of the game. Now, going back real quick, I don't want to interrupt, but going back, Bobby Houck said basically their 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 goal was to make sure he got hit. And Jimmy Lake even talked about how you can't hit him that many times or allow him to get hit that many times. I'm wondering if there was a hit or two in particular that really affected him more than we've been led to believe. Yeah, that's always possible. Um, you know, I, I just, I have a hard time, uh, understanding, you know, what, what happened with all that. Cause I'm not inside and everything, but I mean, just from my viewpoint, he got happy feet. He got, he absolutely got happy feet and was, was not throwing on his spot, was throwing off of, uh, you know, he, they got him off platform and, he, he, he usually throws pretty well on the run, but he, he was off target a couple times, which turned into interceptions. Um, and, and then he, you know, he, he was throwing the ball away. He had bad, bad technique and, and, or bad mechanics and, and overthrew guys, threw outside, guys went inside. I mean, there were so many mistakes in that game and so many, so many opportunities that Washington had to snatch it back. And they just didn't get it done. And I don't know if there's anything else that we can say that can, that can make any sense of what happened. Cause honestly, Chris, and I, I'm not going to speak for you, but I'm speaking for me. I, I still look at that game and go, how did they lose? I, I still don't understand how Washington lost that game. Yeah. No, it's, it's mind boggling. And, and to, to go back to the, to the last question I wanted to ask you before maybe asking the overreaching question about John Donovan is, with the run game, do we think we we're going to see more than two uh, two running backs against Michigan? Because I that you, that was mind-boggling yeah. to me that you kept your your leading ball carrier in twenty twenty, Sean McGrew, on the sideline. You kept your other senior who came back and Kamari Pleasant on the sideline. Cameron Davis and Richard Newton did nothing, and you decided that you wanted to go. I they, you know they always talk about going with the hot hand and whatnot. Neither one of those guys was running with a hot hand. I, I'm just really stumped as to why they didn't try to make more changes. Well, you know, Keith Bonifa said, you know, he wanted to find two guys and he feels like those are his two best guys. Now you can agree with it or not agree with it, but that's his, that's what he wants to go with. And that's why I'm still hesitant to say that Sean McGrew or Kamari Pleasant are going to get in there and get carries. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if they do, if, especially if the other guys are faltering, but, Honestly, I don't know how much open room there was, you know, with the way the offensive line was just not blocking well and not picking stuff up and and uh, really struggling to get open any holes. And I don't know if Sean McGrew or Kamari Pleasant does much better than they did. Yeah, I just find it interesting that they didn't they really didn't try that hard to find a lot of backside stuff. 
didn't feel like they were interested in really trying to bounce a lot of things outside and try to utilize their speed against an FCS defense that, you know, let's be perfectly honest. I mean, a lot of those guys that were recruited to that side of the ball, now some of them were FBS transfers, guys that had come from programs like Oregon State. and So you're talking about some, you know, legitimate FBS-style athletes. But for the most part, we didn't, you know, we didn't see Washington try to really expose them uh, athletically from side to side. And now, yes, you can talk about them being more quick than big. I get that. But still, there should have been a physical component to this Russian attack that we just didn't see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I can't really dispute with you, Chris. Yeah. Well, no, I just, I was just very curious to see, you know, kind of your takes on that. But before we take a quick break and, and move over to the defensive side of the ball and, and, and talk about what we expect to see tonight from them, uh, in death row, the big question, obviously the $64 question that every Washington fan wants to know is what happens to John Donovan if they lay another egg tonight at the big house? You know, this is, this is such a different opponent than Montana that you could see them easily getting shut out if they can't move the ball, obviously. Absolutely. And they just try to play a field position game. I, if they do, if they yeah. do get shut out, it, it, do, do we all of a sudden just assume that John Donovan is dead man walking or, or how do you approach this? Cause there's no offensive line or there's no offensive coach out there on the team that could, that has the kind of experience that you would require for them to automatically just reshuffle things. Yeah, then, no. Well, I mean, Junior Adams would be the only one, but I, was he a play caller at uh Western I, Kentucky? I can't remember. Honestly, yeah. I can't remember. He, he might be, but, you know, yeah. he's got his hands full. Yeah, oh, yeah, he does. I Look, anybody who thinks John Donovan's going to get fired in the middle of the season that I, I or even in the second game of the season, it's not going to happen. I, I I think Jimmy knows he's he's – wedded himself to John Donovan and his style of offense and it's the style of offense he wanted and so they're running with that and I think he'll go with it and and believes that it's going to get better and you know they they could get trounced by Michigan and I still don't see John Donovan getting fired but I could see the dead man walking situation where you know he's he's not going to be retained for another year. And if that's the case, then Jimmy better go out and make a good hire because his job's on the line. But, um, you know, this is, this is coming from somebody who was, I don't want to say I was a complete hundred percent believer in what John Donovan did. I was in show me mode, you know, I, and, and wasn't going to believe or not believe in him. I just wanted him to show me what he could do. But I also really like the physical brand of football that he preaches and that he wanted to run. And then we don't see it. So what is it? What is the, what is, what are we missing here? Because a physical brand of football, Washington, regardless of what you think they can do in the Pac-12 or against a team like Michigan, Washington should be able to roll the ball out there, run four or just run guys at run, running plays. They might not even have to run a, a passing game and run right over. Uh, Montana because of the size of the athletes and the, and the, the quality of the athletes compared to what Montana's able to do. And Washington wasn't able to do that. So I don't think that this is, some, I mean, look, Washington got wins over Oregon State, over Arizona and over Utah last year. And all of those teams would beat Montana. Maybe Arizona doesn't, but 
the other two would, would have beaten Montana last year. And Washington beat all three of those teams. And now granted they had to come back and won and the other one they kind of had to hold on. The, the Arizona win was pretty much a blowout on their part, but you know, I, I don't know, Chris. I, I, I really don't believe that John Donovan is going to get fired this year, but I also know that he's kind of coaching for his life at, at the University of Washington. If, if he does, if his offense doesn't improve over the next couple of weeks, he is going to be dead man walking. Yeah, because it's it's the equivalent of a Mike Leach-led air raid attack that has a quarterback that can't complete a pass. Yeah. We're talking about the 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 basic fundamental tenet of your offense is to rely on a huge offensive line and lean on them to gain four, four and a half, five yards of carry, whatever you need to do to open everything else in your game to possess the ball, to move the chains to basically play keep away from the other team. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an old school mindset, but it, it is the mindset that Jimmy Lake preaches. And it's the one that he is wedded to, like you said, and for better or for worse, he, he's going to go down with his offensive coordinator if they don't turn things around very quickly, because there's no doubt he's the one that handpicked John Donovan. He's the one that's going to be ultimately responsible for whether or not this thing uh, sinks or flies. So, you know, yep. that enough said about that. When we return, Scott and I are going to be talking about death row, the other side of the ball, what we expect to see from then tonight against Michigan in the big house. Uh, for Scott Eklund, this is Chris Fetters of dogman.com. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, this is Chris Fetters of Dogman.com. We're back with Scott Eklund, and we've hashed out as much as we can about the offense. Time to move over to the other side of the ball, Scott. This is an opportunity for Death Row to really impose themselves on a national stage. They didn't do anything against Montana that would be uh, something that would raise alarm bells, but at the same time, they didn't get any turnovers. They didn't really shut down. Uh, a Montana attack that I think is pretty good for an FCS program. But when you take their top two running backs and they have 24 carries for a four and a half yard average and they were running the ball really, really well in the fourth quarter when you needed to shut them down the most, it feels to me like Bob Gregory's move to this, you know, to this 50 offense at time or 50 defense at times when you have those three big defensive linemen in there it doesn't feel like it's really settled in and taken hold yet. Yeah. Well, and, and I made the comment and you and I talked about it during the game, during the Montana game, there just wasn't a lot of difference makers up front. Now I realized that Vita Vea, by the way, Vita Vea on Thursday night had a monster game, even though he didn't put up a stat. Isn't that scary, Chris, that he didn't put yeah. up a stat in, yeah. well, in, in the, the, on the that game. In a oh, huge oh yeah. Quite, quite a bit. So, but I understand that Vita Vea, Danny Shelton, those are, I don't want to, Danny Shelton's not quite in Vita Vea's, uh, level, but he, you know, Vita Vea was a generational talent at defensive tackle, but, and so you don't have to have that 
in order to be successful. But you got to have guys like Greg Gaines who play way above who they are as athletes and can can be dominant inside as well. And right now, I haven't seen that from Thule, uh, Letu Ligasanoa. I haven't seen it from Sam Tainmani. I haven't seen seen it from Jacob Bandis. And I haven't seen it from Fa'atui Tuatele. Now, all of them have that talent or better, but I just haven't seen them do it. And is that the coaching they're getting? Is that the scheme? Is that them thinking a little too much? I don't know. I think Thule was a little rusty. He didn't play. He didn't play. No, he played one game last year or two games. I can't remember how many games played he played. at least but, one game, maybe yeah. two. But, I mean, he wasn't 100% healthy. And, you know, he, he goes out. I don't know out, if he is now. Yeah, he, go, he goes out for a couple. What did he go out for the rest of that one series and then came back or whatever it was. And uh he's playing and, and everything like that. But he's really the guy that you have to look to to be the difference maker because he has that talent. But as far as the other guys, they're just kind of there. I don't think they're terrible. But I don't think they're guys who can make plays up front and occupy two or three blockers at a time, which is what Vita Vea and Greg Gaines did. With those two guys in the middle of the Husky defense, nobody was able to run on them. And they could, Washington could do a lot of different things with their outside guys, with their two inside guys. But right now they're having to go to three defensive linemen in order to do that. And they're still not able to be as productive as Gaines and Vea were when they were here. Yeah, and then also behind Gaines and Vea, you had guys like Azim Victor and Keyshawn Bieria, and then later Ben Burkirvan, you know, guys that were really good about staying clean and being able to fit runs as good as anyone out there. I mean, those guys were super experienced, and they did not, they just did not uh, lose gaps and didn't evacuate yeah. In, the, yeah. in in some of the ways that some of this the recent run defenses has, you know, and to to the point about Fatui Tuatele. Um, you know, he played 32 snaps. Pro Football Focus had him as an overall grade of 35.6. Which, Who is this? I mean, Who is this? To a tele. Yeah. I mean, that is Bulow-esque. I don't know other, any other way to put it. Um, he did okay in the tackling phase, but just the run defense just was not there. But you know what? To be honest with you, Scott, the most alarming grade that I saw was from their middle linebacker, Edifuan Ulafoshio, a preseason yeah. All-American, a guy that that a many feel could be the number one middle linebacker taken off the board in next year's NFL draft, had an overall grade of less than 50. Yep. And I've never seen that before from him. He's usually more like 75 to 80. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know how to explain that. I have no idea how to explain it. Maybe he's dealing with a physical issue. Maybe he's got a ding that that they just won't talk about because Jimmy Lake doesn't talk about those week to week injuries, but maybe there's something going on with him that, that they haven't discussed and we can't really see other than the fact that he just, he clearly didn't look himself. I mean, Jackson Sermon was the one who he led had the, better, the Huskies better in tackles. Game, yeah. yeah. He, he had, led the Huskies he had the in tackles game. with nine. He was all um, over the place. He was yeah, all over Ula, the place. Ulafosio had five tackles. So it's not like he had a poor game and he had one tackle for loss and he had one breakup. But the thing about Ulafosio is what's the one thing that we always know about him from the very moment he stepped on the football field for he, Washington? He's, he's everywhere. He's going to be in position, yeah. He's everywhere. He he is every single snap. He's going to suss out what the play is and where the ball's going to go, and he'll just snuff it out. Well, he wasn't doing that against Montana, and for whatever reason, that was very disconcerting. Now, things may change against Michigan. Maybe he's healthier. Maybe he's 
Maybe something happened. Maybe I don't know. I mean, we're all you can do is speculate. But I just thought that the 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 play inside, especially with with Ulafocio, was really really shocking because it just wasn't something you'd expect to see. Yeah, yeah, no, I I fully agree with you, Chris. I was a little surprised myself. And uh, and then MJ Tavisi when he went in, eh, he was okay. He wasn't anything special. And uh, you know, it's like I I just keep going back to it. I don't see a difference maker. The two difference makers on this team right now are Kyler Gordon and Trent McDuffie. I think Bookie can be be a a difference maker for Washington, but so far he hasn't shown me a lot either. Yeah, and it's interesting too because the guy who you know if of of players at Washington that had more than 15 snaps against Montana, of all of those players, who do you think had the highest grade? from pro football focus it was alex cook and the yeah. and we're talking about him potentially getting moved to offense yeah this is where this is where washington is as a team right now yeah it, and but it, but right behind him was mcduffie as you would expect yeah. yeah and i i just i go i continue to go back when i look at those numbers and you look at the advanced metrics and all those different things I just keep saying to myself, something was weird about that Saturday night. I don't want to say that Washington isn't responsible for the loss. They obviously are. It was terrible. But something was off. And I don't know if it's it was a lack of preparation. I don't know if it was a lack of motivation. I don't know what it was. I don't know if they were looking ahead to playing against Michigan in the in the big house. But you can't do that and, and expect to win a game against Montana and Washington. It isn't even that Washington lost some, some, you know, 31, 28 blowout or I'm sorry, you know, offensive explosion. Washington was shut out by an FCS team after the first series. They didn't do anything and they had the ball in the 32. They had the ball in the 42 of Montana twice starting, starting, uh, um, you know, drives and they didn't get any points. You, you just cannot do that. And, and I don't, I, I really don't have an answer for anyone other than they just crapped the bed and didn't get it done. And, you know, and I'm not being critical of, of you, Chris, but it's like, I don't know how much more we can beat it into the ground. You know, it, it's, I just don't know anything else to give you other than than I just don't think that's who this team was because Chris and I hope you would agree with me maybe you don't I don't want to speak for you but this is not the team we saw in fall camp at all at well, it's all not, it's not just it's not just that it's not the team that the fans saw at all yeah. don't yeah. take our word for it take your own look at look at it with your own eyes and and see for yourself there are, were plenty of reports out there from some from fans that were certainly like, you know, I like what I see. Obviously, they've got to do it on the field. I'll, I'll be less skeptical when they prove it and execute it in in actual games. And there are lots of things still to work on. But there was nothing in any fan report that I saw that went there that was just like, yeah, we're in deep we're in deep trouble. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're in really bad shape on this side of the ball. You know, they may have been talking about like, well, I haven't seen him throw a deep ball yet, so I'm not sure they're going to have anything in terms of maybe like a deep passing game or something. But it was always like picking the nits. It was the details of very certain things. It wasn't like our offensive line's going to absolutely blow yeah. or uh John Donovan can't 
he can't run this offense. Or, you know, there might be people privately that were thinking that, and obviously there's a lot more now that are saying it publicly, but I didn't see anything like that before. Yeah, I didn't either. And And then I I was going to say, if you go to the defense, you talked about, you know, all the things that Washington was unable to do against Montana's defense. Well, Montana's offense, they obviously had a few wrinkles. They get a field goal on their first drive. And then after that, they had eight straight series of either having to punt or giving the ball away on downs. Yeah. And so it was like, it wasn't like Washington all of a sudden just folded. They folded in the fourth quarter. Yep. They folded in the fourth quarter in the moments well, that mattered the most in the highest leverage situations. Mm-hmm. It was like Washington didn't either didn't believe in themselves or, or just thought that Montana was going to be the team that folded. It was just, it was such a very surreal situation watching that game unfold at the end, at the end. Yeah, it absolutely was. And, and I think anybody who walked out of there, it was, you know, somebody said to me, cause they, a friend of mine was at the game and he said walking out, it was like walking dead. It was like watching yeah. people because they, they just, they didn't know what happened. They were like, did that really just happen? Right. And, and, but it did. <laughs> so. Yeah. And that's why, and that's why it's so hard again for, to really try to extrapolate and, and try to understand how that same team hits the field tonight on the road in front of a hundred thousand plus likely, I assume. How, how, how can they possibly react? in a positive way other than rallying around themselves because it's clear that no one else outside of the program believes they can really get it done outside of a few real diehards, super diehards well, that just it, are going to pick them to win every game. You know, some of the best comebacks are teams that don't feel like anybody else supports them and it's yeah. just them. And that's what Washington's got their back against the wall. They got to come out and they've got to play. They're going to have to defy the odds. In order to, in order to get this done, they can do it. They've got the talent. They're, they're just as talented as Michigan. Maybe not, um, you know, as much top end talent, but I think depth wise, Washington has a, just as much talent as, as Michigan does. Um, so it's really going to be about can they, do they believe in themselves and, and can they have that chip on their shoulder? I don't want to see them hanging their heads, but you know what? If Michigan takes their will, this could get ugly really quick. It could. It could. Now, I don't necessarily think that because I fully believe, you know, Washington's defense is good enough to keep them in the game, especially, you know, until the second half at a minimum. But, you know, when you look back at the at the Western Michigan game, for instance, for Michigan, you know, it was 10-7 to 7 going into the second quarter, and then second quarter is when it really kind of exploded. Yeah. For you know, for the Wolverines. Um, you know, I just, is there anything that you saw? Because we now know that Ronnie Bell's out for the year. So they lose their number one playmaker, receiving playmaker. But they clearly have guys like Corum and Haskins who are are really, really good running backs. They're kind of the two guys, the, the two-headed monster, so to speak, that, that I'm sure then, Washington will expect to see tonight. And then one of the top running backs in the 2021 recruiting class, Donovan Edwards. Is right, there. and we saw a little bit. We saw, I think he had like five, six carries uh, against For 27 yards, something like that. Right, yeah. so, you know, so we, we saw pieces. Do, do you think Jim Harbaugh left a lot in the tank, you know, in terms of, 
did they circle this game much like you would have expected Jimmy Lake to circle this game for Washington? Mm, I don't know. I, you know, the, I watched some of the things that they did and it wasn't as straightforward as just running, you know, running just into the line and, and breaking through and getting runs that way. I mean, they were doing a few different things here and there. One of their top receivers, A.J. Hastings, had a 74-yard, what was that, end around or whatever it was. Oh, A.J. Henning. A.J. Henning. Henning, sorry. A.J. Henning had had that 74-yard run. But, you right. know, I mean, they just they – they did a lot of different things. Hassan Haskins, last year's top returning tailback for them, he led them last year. He got 13 carries for 70 yards and a touchdown. And Blake Corum gets 14 carries for 111 yards and a touchdown. And he scored the first touchdown – of the year for the, for the, uh, for the Wolverines. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I don't know if they left anything in the tank. I, I'm sure they did. I'm sure they didn't pull out all the stops to beat Western Michigan, especially when it was 40, you know, it was, what was it? It was, uh, th- you know, 30 to seven midway through the third quarter, 33 to seven. And right. so I, I, I just have to believe that, um, you know, they, they decided that, hey, we're just going to run it and we don't really need to do very much because they only threw the ball 17 times, Chris. Sure. And, and out of what is it? What was it? 60 plays. They threw it 17 times. So, right. um, do I think that's going to be the case against Washington? Well, what's the best feature on Washington's defense? Is there well, I was, was going to say, I was, I was going to lead into the idea that Michigan had four basically chunk touchdowns. Like, you know, they had a, a 76 yard pass to Ronnie Bell, which obviously Bell's not going to be available tonight. Mm-hmm. But then you had Henning with that run, 74 yard run you mentioned. Corum had a 30 yard run. And then, uh, Baldwin had a pass from the backup, JJ McCarthy, at the end to really extend it, 47-7. Yeah. Those are all massive chunk plays. But Washington has been the best in college football at eliminating those chunk plays. Yeah. So it's kind of the, the classic immovable force or irresistible force immovable object debate. Do you think Michigan will still be able to run those chunks and get those huge chunk plays against Washington that they were able to get against, uh, get against Western Michigan? My, my personal feeling is no, but I don't see anything in what I saw against Western Michigan, that tells me Michigan can't drive the ball as well. And they couldn't, yeah. Because they, you know, 330 plus rushing yards tells me they can still get the ball up and down the field as much as they yeah. want, just running the ball and then using the play action and the other things to, to keep, uh, the Huskies off balance. Yeah. And I, I, I really think that, um, Washington is going to have to, my guess is if Washington thinks they can, their, their guys can cover, um, Michigan's wide receivers, and they've got a couple good ones still, even, even with Ronnie Bell out, and he is their best receiver, but, you know, they've got that speed guy, uh, out of, um, Hawaii that Washington offered that's. Oh, Wilson? Yeah, Wilson, uh, Romeo Wilson? Yeah. Is that his yeah. Name? Um, and, and, uh, he's a speed guy for and them. And he got a chunk play too. He had, I think, a, like a 43, 44 yard catch against Western Michigan, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, so um well he's not on the on the chart, but yeah, I mean he might have and maybe it got called back, but whatever it was. Anyway, you know, Dalen Baldwin's a good wide receiver, AJ Henning's a good wide receiver. 
Um, Blake Corum can catch the ball out of the backfield. He had a touchdown, uh, catching the ball as well. So, um, Washington's going to have to man up, but, but if they feel like they can cover guys outside, maybe that means that they can put Bookie in the box a little bit more, a guy who's a little more physical, uh, up there. Cameron Fabi Kulanen finally got his taste of the field and, uh, it'll be interesting to see how he develops and, and advances himself as a player. Um, and what he's able to do because when we watched him, he, he was right on it on, on coverage. He was, he was great when the ball was in the air in practice and everything like that. So Washington needs him to be good too. But if their secondary can be sound and can be trusted, that means that Washington can send a lot more pressure up to stop the run. And if they're stopping the run, then Michigan's going to have to throw the ball. And I think that's when Washington has the, the advantage. Yeah, uh, I think it's going to be a really, really interesting kind of chess match within the football game. Uh, there's no doubt uh, Michigan's got the upper hand, not only because they're playing at home, but they're also playing against a team that's, uh, you know, licking their wounds in a huge way and uh, trying to, to right the ship and, and do all the other things that they need to do to, in order to salvage their season. Now, the upside is going back to that 2007 season for Michigan, yeah, they lost their next game to Oregon pretty badly after losing to App State. But then they went the following week and they shut out Notre Dame 38 to nothing. So yeah, could they, could they lose in, in dispiriting fashion tonight against Michigan, but still have a salvageable season? Could they come back and still do some big things? Well, you know, Michigan ended up nine and four on that season and, and they ended Florida up Florida in the uh, Capital One Bowl, right? Right. It was a, yeah. And it was a, they were top 10. Florida was top yeah. 10 at the time. Yeah. So. You know, there is, there is precedent. There's history to suggest that this isn't, you know, uh, a one game season where all of a sudden all hope is lost. And from the outside looking in, it feels that way because you don't, you can't really get the pulse of the team right now. You just don't get the feeling, uh, and, 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 and sense of how Washington has reacted to this game positively, negatively, or otherwise. You know, again, Ryan Bowman's talked about they, they're on the same page. In terms of the leadership piece, in terms of communicating what needs to be done, in terms of producing their own energy. And this will be a great test. Producing your own energy on the road is a must. It, it's an absolute uh, essential piece. Part of the foundation of having success on the road is, is coming together and providing your own energy in a hostile environment. And you won't find uh, more or at least one of the more hostile environments in college football than against Michigan in the big house. Now, it won't necessarily trap the sound in like it does at Husky Stadium. Having been at at at, uh, at Michigan Stadium, the, the the sound really just goes straight up and out because it's very flat, yeah. very you know round. It's flat and it's but it it has there's so many people in there and it's such a crazy environment and you feel like even though it's kind of flatter and it's not really as going straight up vertically, it does feel like guys are kind of on top of you a little bit. And, uh, it's a, it's going to be a heck of a, a heck of an environment for those guys tonight. Um, I know ultimately we both picked Washington to lose, um, not in, you know, super poor fashion, but I think ultimately pretty convincingly. Um, any final thoughts, Scott, on, on what you think is going to happen tonight? Well, I, I, I really do have to believe that Washington's going to come out a lot more focused. Um, I think they're going to come out. With a little, I've got to believe they're going to come out with a chip on their shoulder. And these coaches know that they're coaching for their life. Even Jimmy Lake, I'm sure, feels some of the pressure. And they, they, they need a sense of urgency. This needs to get done. 
And um, I think I think Washington's going to come out and play a much more inspired, spirited game. I could see uh, some things breaking their way if they can make you know force a force a turnover here or whatever. You got to play well. You got to play well. If Washington has any chance at winning this game, they absolutely have to play well. They have to take advantage of what little opportunities they're going to get because. Uh, Michigan has talent on that defensive side of the ball and they are well coached, but, uh, Washington's going to have some opportunities and, and you've got to take advantage of those opportunities. If they don't, they, you, you know, you're not going to see a, a 40, I've seen a couple predictions on our board for the people who are just bummed out. They're saying 45 to three or whatever. That's, I, I don't see that happening. I, I just, I, I just don't. And I think what you'll see at worst, I think you'll see like a 30 to 10 game where Washington, it's, that's a bad loss. 30, you know, 20 point loss to, to Michigan who, who are not world beaters by any stretch of the imagination. Um, for if Washington loses that by 20 points, that, that's a pretty bad signal, but, uh, I've, I've just got to believe they're going to come out focused, ready to go and are going to give their best effort. And, uh, we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned about the short fields and whatnot, and for Washington not to take advantage of short fields against Montana is one thing, but to to not be able to take advantage of short fields against Michigan on the road in the big house, it, those are opportunities you can't squander, simply put. You just can't. Um, you know, I would say, you know, finally, you know, I, I, I put it out there on the message boards this week for, for all those that, are looking for the silver linings or, or are willing to put on the tin hat for one week. Did Washington keep it so vanilla and, and, and even to the point where they lost that game because they weren't willing to try to, to unload the, the toolbox, so to speak, offensively? Is that because they have so much left in store for Michigan because they had specifically pointed this game as a game where they had something that they wanted to unleash on the Wolverines. And and again, like I said, that's, you know, you're having to delve into conspiracy theory type territory to, to try to, to try to figure out a a way or a plan forward for this Washington offense to have success because what we saw against Montana, against Montana simply won't cut it. And that's very easy to say now in hindsight, but it certainly won't cut it tonight against Michigan. There's absolutely no way they will have success unless they can, show that they can run the ball when they need to. You have to win the turnover battle, simply put. You've got to win field position, and you've got to win special teams. You've got to be able to to get Kyler Gordon and Trent McDuffie out there as the gunners to try to pin them deep like they have in the past. They've done a phenomenal job of that, and you've got to take advantage of those opportunities when they come. Uh, I was there uh, at Michigan in 2002, um, I was there in the far end zone when uh, Brabs hit hit the first field goal and then the penalty came and then they hit the second field goal to win the game. And so I've I've seen the nail biters. I've seen it up close and personal, uh, you know, at the stadium. I know what that feels like. If it comes down to something like that at the end of the game tonight, I think maybe that's all you can expect as a Washington fan at this point is, yeah. to, is to just really – just scrap and claw for every yard uh, that you can get offensively, defensively, otherwise. Um, Michigan has shown themselves to be very explosive already this season, but Washington's defense should be 
substantially better than Western Michigan. They should be just substantially better. But how that manifests itself tonight on the field when they are trying to find their identities again, this is not the place to find your identity. When you're trying to figure out what you do well on offense, for instance, yeah, you need to figure that out during camps. And and we thought that that had happened, but clearly it hasn't. And they're still very much in search of, of what works for them and what doesn't. And these are hard, hard lessons to learn, especially on the road. First home, first road game, non-conference game in two years. Um, it just sets itself up to be a recipe for disaster. I really hope I'm wrong. I really hope Washington comes out tonight and really just kind of fires off and hits them in the mouth first. That would be a nice change of pace. If they could do that and get Michigan on their heels a little bit and get them thinking and give Dylan Morris a little bit of breathing room for him to operate the offense, because we've seen he can operate this offense. We've seen he, he's done it against Pac-12 opponents. So if he can, if he gets a little room to operate, maybe we're talking about a different story. But we're only going to find out, and we'll find out in a few hours here. So, hey, hey, Chris, one yep. thing I think we need to mention is, um, you know, today is the 20 year anniversary of one of the, well, one of the most shocking moments in U.S. history, I would say. Um, and you wrote a really good story. Um, well, actually, you reposted a story that you did from 20 years ago. That's if I read it correctly. Is that correct? I've never written about it. Never oh, you never had. It. These okay, are this, gotcha. these are stories that everyone knows about that we've talked okay. about anecdotally. Yeah, but I've never actually put them down on paper, so to speak. Yeah, and, and, and it just felt right to yeah. do it 20 years. And after. I and I've heard the story about you know Joe and 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 not wanting to get on a plane again and all those kind of things. And yeah. I don't blame him for that at that moment. But um, you know, and and I still remember where I was when it happened. It was a Tuesday. So I, and I had woken up early just for whatever reason. I, I, and, um, I had just moved back to the, the state from, um, an excursion out to Oklahoma at the time and uh, just moved back to the state and was staying with a friend of mine and, and his wife as, as I kind of just got, I was looking for an apartment doing some different stuff. And, and, uh, um, I remember waking up, sitting in the room, just going, going, what the heck is going on? And I honestly didn't realize that it was a, I feel foolish about it now, but back then I thought it was like a little Piper cub that had flown into the, cause the way the smoke was billowing off, it didn't look like a major plane had crashed into the, the towers. And, uh, and then when you saw the second one come in and you knew something was going on and then you hear about the Pentagon and everything like that, but, uh, um, you know, don't want to relive, you know, some people might be even traumatized a little bit by, by, uh, stuff going on, uh, people talking about it too much because of, you know, it might be a little too traumatized or whatever, but, uh, just wanted to, you know, send our hearts out to those who lost people in, in that, uh, directly, but also to all Americans and, and just also say that, you know, we're never going to forget. I know that people, you know, nowadays we're so far away from Pearl Harbor. What is it? 80 years, almost 80 years, uh, removed from Pearl Harbor now. And, and you and I, Chris, we, we were born 30 years after that happened and, or not quite 30 years, like 25 years after that was, that happened. And, um, actually, yeah, 30 years for me and 28 for you, I think, but, Whatever it was, we, we, it was never part of our lives. And 
there are there are kids now anyone under the age of 20 doesn't know and anyone under the age of like five probably doesn't even or 25 doesn't really realize what it was about you know and and so but i will say this it's something that none of us will ever forget i remember where i was and you obviously remember where you was and you, you were sorry <laughs> and um and i just wanted to say good job on the story because i just i read it i read it uh um, before it published, I read it and um, was very moved by what what you had to write. Well, no, thank you. Um, I it just to be honest with you, I, I I read something else out there where people had talked about kind of where they were, you know, sports writers and and how help kind of helpless they felt at the time because they wanted to try to do something and it's just you're a sports writer, you know, this is something that transcend sports in a, in a huge way. This is all the president about, couldn't do anything. How is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So it, it just, it was just one of those yeah. things, right? It's stream of consciousness. And then just, it just kind of kept going a little bit. The other thing, you know, since you did bring it up and I appreciate you bringing it up, we would also be remiss to talk about, you know, Sunday, you know, tomorrow, it will be the 20th anniversary of the, the 16 uh, Washington fans that lost their lives in the, the mm-hmm. following day. Um, taking the the excursion to Chichen Itza to go check out the ruins um, when they were in Cozumel, and um, yeah, I won't forget that anytime soon too. Too, and and obviously our our hearts and our thoughts go out and our prayers go out to them. You know, any family members that may be listening to this that lost a loved one, um, absolutely heartbreaking. And as I wrote about it, just I, we didn't realize it at the time because we we were on we weren't on the same cruise we weren't part of the same group, but when I t- talked to my folks the following day and and all of a sudden realized how much they like they thought maybe I was on a plane, mm-hmm. and it was just I, it was just a really really hard to take, and it was so heartbreaking, uh, especially knowing that that they weren't coming back and yeah. so. Yeah. And, and you hear some of those stories of the 9-11 survivors that, you know, one guy uh, gave up his seat um, right. so that someone could go see their family earlier. And he, he decided to wait. And you, you talk about other ones who were late for the flight. And so they didn't they didn't make it. And right. just how much our lives changed that day and, and living in a post 9-11 world is such a different world from what. It was before that we were still pretty darn innocent and at that point in time and because war had never hit us really on, on American soil at least and it um, it, it did that day and, and uh, it, it's it's tough to remember but you, you never need you never want to forget because if we if we don't remember what what it was like then we're going to repeat the same mistakes. So. Yeah, and so obviously it certainly puts tonight's game very much in perspective. You know, as much as you know, Washington fans are licking their wounds and 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 probably pretty down on what's going on with Washington football right now. You know, it, it's a it's a stark and sobering reminder of just how important those things like that are, and things like the game tonight is in the grand scheme. So, <laughs> on on that on that kind of uh, I don't know. Somber. Somber. Yeah. I guess on that somber note, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. So for Scott Eklund, this is Chris Fetters of dogman.com. Go dogs. CBS.
CBS Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game for speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor, Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.